Thanks, Ryan. Have you ever had one of those weeks where you just feel like you're kind of losing your mind? Have you had one of those? That was my week this week. Um, I was having a conversation earlier in the week with Tracy, and she was like, man, fall's busy at the church. It's kind of her first fall uh, doing ministries and things. And I said, yeah, the fall, the fall is crazy. And so I walk in on Wednesday. Tracy wasn't in that day. She, she had some things she had to do. And I walk in, and it was like in the morning, it was like an epiphany hit me. Brett, you, you have to preach this week. <laughs> and I'm dead serious, like an epiphany. Like it was like, oh, oh, yeah. And that's, if that's not bad enough, I walk in on Thursday, have a meeting in the morning, meeting with somebody, and then Tracy's got lunch, so I was like, oh, I got to talk with Tracy before she goes to lunch, and she goes, hey, Brett, everything's ready and proclaim, um, you just need to put your stuff in there. And I'm like, oh, like, Tracy, I don't lead worship anymore. And I was like, oh, yeah, you preach on Sunday, you have slides to put in there. So that was my week. So um, this morning, <clears throat> we're back in Ephesians. Um, we're thankful for those of you that joined us last week at the Cornfest service. It was great to have you and be able to uh, spend time with the greater church like we did. But uh, this morning we'll finish off chapter 2 uh, of Ephesians, so we're looking forward to that. We're, we're grateful for Micah for, for getting us started in chapter 2 and doing the first 10 verses. And um, the theme of those verses that he preached on was this idea of, of by grace through faith, that we are saved by grace through faith. And if you remember, as we started this series, one of the questions I posed, both in the beginning on stage, but also in our newsletter regularly, is that we have been saved by grace through faith, but for what purpose? What purpose is this great creed of Scripture for? Is it simply just for salvation, or is there something a little deeper to it? And last week, we, we seen... Last time we were together, sorry, we've seen that purpose of the statement work out in our personal faith journey. Uh, Micah demonstrated that very well. The idea that we were lost and Christ brought us near through his sacrifice. But this morning, as we go through the rest of chapter 2, we're going to look at how this purpose, this statement has um, purpose for us as a corporate family, as a church family. So join with me this morning as we read Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time... You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace." who has made us both one and who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Since I was old enough to watch and understand hockey, I've been a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. And I really don't care what you think about that, but it's my favorite team. So you can say whatever you want, I don't care. Um, growing, growing up in elementary school, I didn't really have a best friend. Um, I went to a school and we had five girls and about 20 guys uh, in our elementary class. And that was like that all the way from grade one to five. Our teachers, uh, they did not love us. Um, but they, we were all kind of friends. All 20 of us just kind of hung out and did everything at school together. And some of us hung out after. And I had a bunch of friends on my street. So I never really had a best friend until junior high. And there was this, this guy I connected with in junior high. And we connected about a bunch of things. But one of the things was hockey. And he turned out to be a Montreal Canadiens fan. Not only that, his whole entire family was. And if you know anything about hockey, the Maple Leafs and the Canadians have been rivals for 100 years. Not for a little while, for, for decades and decades and decades. So for most of, my, most of my life, I've poked fun at the Canadians. My friend has poked fun back at uh, the Maple Leafs. I illustrate this to, to show us that our world is made up of rivalries, right? Some of them are silly. PC versus Mac, Coke versus Pepsi. There's probably another joke in there, we're not going to say it. Uh, Yankees and pretty much every other baseball team, right? Uh, Republican versus Democrat, East versus West, right versus left, North versus South, particularly in the States. And unfortunately, we still have rivalries between different ethnic groups and those of different wealth classes. These are very apparent in our world. We live in a world that is still full of rivalries. Some of them are innocent, some of them are heinous and awful, but the world is full of them. And here in verses 11 to 22, Paul describes a very deep, complex, and hostile rivalry between two groups of people, between Jews and Gentiles. And Gentile means everyone who's of non-Jewish ethnicity. Okay, so there's Jews and there's everywhere else. You can understand why this is going to create just hostility on the surface, never mind some of the other implications. And this is a rivalry of two people that absolutely despise each other. It's a religious rivalry. The Gentiles did not know the God of Israel. It was a cultural rivalry. Jews had rituals and feasts and ceremonies that distinguished them as God's people, like circumcision. And it was a racial rivalry. The Jews could boast of having the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and declare the uncleanliness of the Gentile population as pagans. Yet in this great divide, these two enemies were to become friends because of Jesus' work on the cross. Verse 14 if you remember, it says that Christ has brought down the dividing wall of hostility. So you could look at it this way. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 speaks of our vertical purpose of Christ's grace making us reconciled to God through Jesus. But the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 speaks to the horizontal purpose of our, this grace and being reconciled to others. So what does this grace mean for the church corporately? Verses 11 to 12 say, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is just a, that was just a fancy way of Paul bringing out the idea that Gentiles were uncircumcised, Jews were circumcised, showing that they uh, were part of the people of God, which is one of their ceremonies, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
Verses 11 to 12 really mirror Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And it illustrates a strong picture of our alienation from God, from Christ, because of the sin that we have, the condition of our sinful nature. But not only from God, the Gentiles were also alienated from other people, from the people of God. And Paul says three things about them in in these texts. He says they were Christless, that they were foreigners, alienated, strangers, and that they were hopeless and godless. So they were separated from Christ, from the hope that comes from Jesus. Jews were told and taught uh, through the scriptures and through the prophets of this coming Messiah, that this Messiah would come. They kind of missed that when Jesus actually came, but they had been told about this their entire lives. This wasn't the case for the Gentiles. And so to be separated from Christ was also to be separated from his salvation, excluded from the life of God. They were also foreigners. He uses the word in the ESV as alienated. Gentiles are excluded from the citizenship of Israel and are stranger to the covenants. Israel was a nation under God, or was meant to be. And Gentiles in that nation would have been considered foreigners. Gentiles were not a covenant people like the Israelites. Paul mentions that there was covenants. And in the Old Testament, there were several covenants made, most notably to people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation itself of Israel, also to David, etc. These were promises made for and about the Jewish people and the coming Messiah. Gentiles were also hopeless and godless. While God's original intention with the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, was to bless all nations, the Gentiles never knew this. Since they didn't know the promises of God, or the God of the promises, they didn't know of the hope of these promises. And furthermore, the nation of Israel was a continuous disaster at being an example of a godly nation, and what it meant to follow and honor God. And this point actually hits home for us, because probably most of us are Gentiles, or can put in that camp. And we were also hopeless and godless before Christ alienated, foreigners. So Gentiles were Christless foreigners and they were hopeless. But as we move forward in our text, we come across another important but statement. If you were here when Micah spoke, he made great significance of the but statement. and I know how it sounds. The the but statement in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 4, and the first couple verses in in Ephesians 2 talk about our, our lostness in Christ, how we were dead spiritually, And then in verse 4 it says, but God, but God being rich in mercy. Verse 13 does the same thing. After 11 and 12 that talks about our alienation from God, our distance, 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus. And so it illuminates this idea of what Jesus has done. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, who were far off in peace to those who were near, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This was demonstrated in the first part of chapter 2. 
Christ has brought a reconciliation, not just for Jewish people, but for all people. Notice the verbs that Paul uses to describe what Christ has done in these verses we've read. He uses the one said, made one. You've been made one. He had broken down this wall of hostility, or tore down. He's abolished. The word create is used, reconciled, and proclaimed. In these verses, you'll notice that Paul also shifts While he's addressing this group of believers, he's talking about full of Jew and Gentiles. He shifts from you to the Gentiles, you who are far off, to we and our. He is shifting the dialogue so that Gentiles can see that at one time they were certainly far off. But now because of Christ, they've been brought in. He addresses the we, a collective group made up of different people, Jew and Gentiles, different ethnicities. And he also uses the word our to show his allegiance to both. Even though Paul is a Jew, he is relentless at preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he identifies with both. There is no different groups, no different sects anymore. There is one group of people, one family under God. Paul points out a few important things in how Christ brings about this reconciling for the Gentiles. First, Christ has brought peace. Jesus is the peacemaker. He comes and brings peace between us and God. And we see this in verse 14, the first part of verse 14, then also in verse 17. Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Peace is found in the person of Jesus. This is described in the Old Testament. If you think of Christmas, we read Isaiah 9, 6 often. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it continues on to say, of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. This idea of this peace is affirmed in the Gospels. When John, when John writes in uh, chapter 14, verse 27, that Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And in the epistles, they're further explained by the apostles Peter and Paul. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our peace, and he is also the embodiment of peace. So he has brought peace between us and God. He has also brought peace between us and other people. Remember that. We're going to get to that later. He is the embodiment of peace. Paul also demonstrates that Christ has made us one. The second part of verse 14 to verse 16, it says Jesus broke down this dividing wall of hostility. Other translations use the word uh, teardown, which I think is probably a more appropriate word uh, than the ESV translation. He tore down the wall of hostility. The wall of hostility between Jews and all other ethnicities. Christ's blood has obliterated the old, long-standing division between Jew and Gentile. The old work of the law and the rituals and ceremonies are gone. Work done in the flesh to identify oneself as a follower of God, no matter matters. There is only one central thing that unites us under Christ. And it's nothing that you have done, nothing I have done, nothing we could possibly do. It's only through what Jesus has done. Paul is declaring to the Gentiles so that the Jewish believers hear him say it, that this is the only thing that matters anymore, is what Christ has done on the cross. Not the workings of Jewish custom, not the striving of doing good things, but it's the work of what Jesus has done. It's not us coming and gathering and and striving and thinking that we will earn something, but there is this thing that Jesus has done that we can accept. And it makes us one. 
There are no barriers between brothers and sisters in Christ. To simplify, Paul is saying, now in Christ you are one. The racism must stop. That's the message to the Jew and Gentiles. The animosity is over. We are reconciled to one body through the cross. They are to forgive each other because of this new unity found in Christ, and they are to mirror Christ's prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Paul also illustrates that Christ has given access to God to all people who put their faith in him. This would be an incredibly significant thing to the Gentiles. Only the high priest could go into the holy place in the temple. There was a curtain in there, and it was right pretty close to the front. The Gentiles couldn't even pass. And now Paul is saying, you Gentiles and you Jews who never were going to be the high priest, you all have access. You can come boldly before the throne because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has abolished and what he's brought forward. We can come right before God in prayer. And prayer is the conversation with the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That is how we are to pray. And all of this is possible because of what Christ has done. So we can come with boldness to the Father because of Christ's blood shed on the cross for us. These are hard things maybe for us to understand their massive significance to the Gentile people. We can certainly see their importance of what Christ or Paul said about Christ. But for the Gentile people, this is like mind-blowing truth. They probably can't believe this at the time. And there's probably some Jews that can't believe it either. Paul reminds Gentiles of who they once were and then who they now are in Christ. But the significant part of this these verses we're going to look at is coming now in this new community that Paul is encouraging, challenging, and demanding happens because of what Christ has done. Verses 19 to 22 say, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christ loves to take things, I don't know if you noticed this, Christ loves to take broken things and fix them. Things that aren't working, make them right. Things that are old, make them new. This is a very common theme in the gospel. Here Paul is saying that through Christ a new community is formed. And it's solely focused on Jesus and his gospel and his mission. So Paul uses three metaphors or word pictures that we can pick up here. And the first one is citizens of the kingdom. It says that the Gentiles are no longer strangers or aliens. Like was described earlier in verses 11 to 12. They're not aliens or strangers anymore. They are citizens, citizens of God's kingdom. Gentile believers are full members of his kingdom. Just like Jewish believers were under the covenants, all people who put their faith and trust become citizens of the kingdom when their trust is in Jesus. During this time when Paul wrote this, being a Roman citizen would have been an immense privilege. And if you follow some of uh, Paul's teachings, his letters, uh, the things that are written about him in Acts, you'll see that he benefits from being a Roman citizen. It also gets him out of some tough spots, particularly in Philippi. But as great as it is to enjoy the benefits of citizenship in a great country, and we live in a great country, 
this citizenship is nothing compared to the citizenship that we have in heaven. Friends, we need to remember that. We need to remember the ultimate citizenship that is above our citizenship here to to our town, to our nation, that there is a higher calling for us as people of God. That citizenship is our priority. He also says that Gentiles are now members of God's family. He uses members of God's household. And this isn't the only time that Paul alludes to this idea of family. That as we accept Jesus, we become part of a family. The family of God. We have the same father. We have the same access to the father. We are adopted as children. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have responsibilities in the family of God. Can't shy away from that. I know sometimes we want to, but the reality is each one of you has purpose and responsibility in the family of God. We are one family made up of each of us following the role that God has given and called us to. To bring glory to the Father. This is the message that Paul is saying to the Gentile and Jewish believers. You are family now. Not just that God has broke down the, the wall of hostility and maybe you can like each other. No, you're, you're family. You need each other. You're together now. You don't have a choice. This is what you're being called to. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 that we should treat one another as family. It's important to remember that this idea of family in the church, that we are now part of, the church is not a building, it's the people. We get this backwards often. And there's some dangers that, that come in with this. This building that we're in right now, though the nice new floor looks really good, this building has no power. There's nothing spiritual about the brick or the paint or the metal in this building. Nothing. It's just a building. You take a sledgehammer and tear it down, it'll tear down. It's not going to stand up because a bunch of Christians meet in it. There's nothing holy about this place. The only thing that becomes holy about this place is when we are here together. It's the people that are the church. You and I are the church. The church is family. It's living life together on mission. And so we have to be careful of a few dangers that arise from this. Dangers when we don't see people as the church, when we see other things as the church. We can think that Sunday, this this thing we're doing right now, that as long as someone gets up on stage and preaches, and as long as we show up, that we have been faithful and we have honored God. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. But there's so much more to being part of the family of God and to being the church than what we're doing right now. This exercise right here, This time we spend is beneficial and it's good, but it is such a very, very, very small part of what it means to be the family of God. And to think anything else is very dangerous, unbiblical, and frankly, it's lazy. We must also avoid the danger of being consumers and not participating in the family. In a family, everybody has a role, everybody has a responsibility, everybody's valued, they have purpose. We are called to that purpose, to the mission that Jesus put before us, the things that God has called us to. North American Christianity is very consumer-driven. What can the church do for me today? Oh, I didn't like the worship. I think I might uh, come back in a month or two. Or I didn't like this, or I don't like this preference. The reality is it's not so much what the church can give to you, but what is God calling you to? The church is a place that we come and we are part of 
as the family of God and we serve the needs that we have and we encourage each other. But we are part of it together. This is what we are called to do. It's the purpose of the church, to live out the mission of our Savior because of the redemption that he has offered us. Finally, the last word picture is, it's a weird one. It's this idea of this new temple. And Paul speaks to it starting in verse 18. So for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's third illustration is a little bit more complex and different for us, but it would have massive implications for the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers he's speaking to. It would have been very vivid. For nearly a thousand years, the temple has been a focal point of Israel. But now, there's a new temple. And it's made up of people. And Paul describes how it's made up. It's made up of the foundation of God's word. That's the foundation. The teaching of the apostles and the prophets. The teachings about Jesus. The Christ-centered teachings of the apostles and the prophets about the coming of the Messiah. The life of the Messiah and the return of Jesus. This is the foundational truth of God's word. And this shouldn't surprise us. The church stands on our faithfulness to God's word or not. If we want to fail, don't be faithful to God's word. If we want to succeed, be faithful to God's word. Next, we see the cornerstone mentioned, which is Jesus. Also, not surprisingly, he is the only one that possibly could be the cornerstone. He makes everything work together, this building possible. He holds it together. It's in his power and his supremacy that he does this. But he also keeps everything together and in alignment, moving us forward in his mission. No unity or growth in the church can happen apart from Christ. Paul then likens the people to stones. You are being built together for God's dwelling. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter refers to us as living stones. So essentially, Paul is saying that we are carefully built building blocks of this new temple. And because we are in Christ, we are marked with the Spirit and being made into a new temple where the Spirit dwells. This would have been a powerful imagery to the Gentiles. Imagine, for all of the Jewish time of faith, Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple past a certain point. And now Paul comes and says, no, you actually are the temple now. Things are new. There's a new community and you're the temple. Not only can you go to the holy place before God, but you are in the temple. It would have been amazing. There would have been some Jews that would have loathed this idea. This was a powerful imagery for Gentile believers and for Jewish believers to hear and accept. So this picture holds up that we've talked about several times over the the summer um, of this carefully built temple, this idea that you and I have purpose. We need each other. We belong together. Um, We don't see Paul saying, hey, we're building this temple out of stones, but we're discarding a whole bunch that look like this, or act like this, or demonstrate this gifting. No, he's saying all of you have a piece in building this temple together through the Spirit. 
So Paul gives this picture of the Gentiles and how they fit with the Jewish believers in this new community as citizens in the family of God. There's great significance for you and I, for us corporately as the church from these verses. The grace that has been gifted to all believers, Jew or Gentile, not only brings salvation, but a a new unified purpose in community together. The free gift of grace that has been given to you and I and to our community, and it's a gift. It's a gift so that you can't boast about it. The only thing you can boast in is how great the gift is. Not that you receive the gift and it's not for somebody else. It's for everyone. So that we might be God's workmanship as equals, as the people of God. So how does this rivalry... This racism from 2,000 years ago relate to us. So I asked the question earlier. What does this great gift of grace mean for the church corporately? There's a few things that I see. First, this gift of grace reminds us of of a former condition. This gift of grace serves as a reminder of our of our previous state before Christ separated from Christ, but people who are now brought near, unified together. This is important for us to remember as a church, certainly individually, but corporately it's important. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that our strategies and our plans and our ministries and our ideas, our vision, our talent, that's what moves the church forward. But just as we are helpless dead, forsaken without Christ individually. Our church and all churches must remember that it is Christ who works through the church. Through his spirit, through God's people and the goal is to honor and serve him and to walk in the things that he calls us to. The power comes not from the things that we can come up with or figure out. It comes from the work and strategy that we have from seeking passionately the person of Jesus. It comes out of that, of our obedience to the Spirit. We cannot be successful without him. The second thing, this gift of grace is for everyone. If this is true, then the church is for everyone. You might say, yeah, of course, Brett. This morning we looked at a great racial divide between Jew and Gentiles. And it's horrible, friends, it's horrible that this is still a reality in the church. You might say, oh, I don't see that in Tabory Free. It's a horrible reality that still exists in our community. It's a horrible reality that still exists in the North American church. Not only that, it's a horrible reality that evangelicals don't speak against it. It's frankly embarrassing. The church is for everyone, regardless of how rich you are, how poor you are, what color of your skin is, what circumstances you have found yourself in that week, it doesn't matter. If the gift is free, if grace is free, if we can't earn it, then it's for everyone. It's an equal footing. And so, grace is for everyone, the church is for everyone. And I'm sure you would all agree with that theologically and intellectually. But is that actually how we practice our faith? Do we offer a place in the family for all of those who want it? Is that how we seek after people? 
Is that how we desire to seek after people? Or do we just invite the people that think like us? Have our political view? Maybe look like us? Or seem to be in the same social status as us? Is the church for everyone? Is this church for anyone? The third thing is the gift of grace compels us to peace. If grace provides peace between God and people, and it does, Paul also encourages that grace provides opportunity for peace with each other. One of the titles of who Jesus is is Prince of Peace. He has brought peace for all people through his sacrifice. And in this sacrifice, we are to pursue peace, particularly in the family of God. We should be the example of this to our culture. And I'm not sure we are. For peace to be made, Jesus reconciled us to God. That is how peace has been made between us and God through the cross, Jesus' reconciliation. That is how peace can be obtained because of the reconciling of Jesus on the cross. So if peace is to be made between us and others, reconciliation must be part of it. It's a clear biblical foundation to it. Often when we think of peace and reconciliation, we think of someone we may know who have hurt us, or someone we feel, man, that person, they need to make peace and reconciliation. But don't think about that. Don't think about other people and what they need to do. What do you need to do? What is the peace that you need to demonstrate? What is the reconciliation that you may need to seek out? When you look into your heart, do you see the desire to be a peacemaker? And we have two choices when it comes to these situations. We can walk out a faithful, biblical reality of being people who pursue peace and reconciliation when there are wrongs done or mistakes made. And we can be people who are willing to hear the ways that we have wronged people or hurt brothers and sisters and take appropriate steps to reconcile peace. Because we don't always know when we hurt somebody. We don't always know when something has happened where it's offended somebody. But we can be people who are approachable and listen. We can take a a place of gentleness and humility and be willing to reconcile and have peace. Or we can rest in our pride. Our self-righteous need to be right. Or our want to justify our actions so that we don't have to admit these things. And we don't have to admit the wrongs and the failures that we may have been part of. Friends, peace is central to the gospel of Jesus. Not just in salvation, but how we live amongst each other. We are to be an example of this to the world, to our community around us. We talk a lot about discipleship. That's our vision. Being someone who makes peace and reconciliation is also a mark of a mature believer. In these past months, even years, have you been a peacemaker? A person of reconciliation? Do you even care about it? These are questions that are appropriate for us to ask ourselves. Our culture doesn't. They don't care about reconciliation. 
and peace. But the church is called to it, and this church must be called to it. Not just called to it, but live in it. Finally, this gift of grace shows our need for all believers. The implications of this idea of this temple being built out of these stones is vitally important. This free gift of grace brings purpose to all believers. We see that individually for salvation, but it also brings purpose in the reality that the Spirit will live in us. Paul illustrates that in these verses where he talks about this temple being built, that the holy place, the holy dwelling of God is now the Holy Spirit, which dwells in the people of God. And so figuratively, metaphorically, they are the temple. And like I said earlier, it's hard for a metaphorical temple, again, we're dealing in metaphorical terms right now, so bear with me, but it's hard for that to be built when we start throwing stones away. We have big gaping holes in the building that we're trying to make. The church is for everyone, but it also is something where we need everyone. We need different gifts. We need different ideas. We need different ways of speaking things. We need different temperaments. We need different leadership styles. We need people to be united. We need everyone. The entire family that is present at Tabor Free is needed. They must be valued, they must be encouraged. But they also must remember the danger of being a consumer. Just coming for an experience or to check a box. We're here to ask ourselves, Lord, if I'm your workmanship and I've received this free gift, what is the purpose that you have for me? And since this is where you have called me, what are the ways that you would like me to serve? In my community, in my church, and in the ministries around me. And help me to say yes to the things that you're placing on my heart. So what is God calling you maybe to do? In your community, in your church, in the family of God. How might you serve? Friends, I want us all to be considering this as we go through the fall. How might we serve each other better? How might we serve the ministries of our church better? How might we pray deeper? How may we dream and vision cast better? How might we pursue the Lord, deeper and better? And how might we be involved? But to do that, we need everyone. We don't just need the elders. Trust me, those are good men, but they can't do everything. You can hire all the people you want, all the pastors you want. It's not going to be enough. The ownership of the church always falls down to the members and the adherents. So we need everybody's gifting everybody's passion, everybody's desire to follow the Lord and work together. So this gift of grace reminds us of, the, of our alienation from God, our reconciliation found in Christ, and the responsibility that we have to live out our faith in the community we call the church. Don't miss that, friends. There is a responsibility because of this grace that we have to live out our faith in the community we call the church. Not for earning anything, not for the sake of our salvation, but there is a responsibility first to Jesus because of the great gift he has given us, because we've given our life to him, but also there is a responsibility of the great love that we ought to have for one another. And in that responsibility, we're called to live out faith in and amongst the community and to serve each other well, but to follow the very practical realities of what it means to be mature believers in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you that we can come and gather as your church, that we can fellowship and that we can worship together and that you meet with us. Because your spirit is in us, we are marked as children. Father, as we wrestle through the the corporate realities of what grace means for us, I pray for us as a church that this would be a place that is unified in purpose, that we would have a deep desire to love people and welcome them, that all would feel like this is a place that they can worship. Father, that we would have a deep sense of what it means to pursue you um, together in the different giftings that we have, that we wouldn't elevate certain giftings or, or make certain things more important than others, but Father, we would see the great need to have many people serve in many different ways for the sake of your gospel. That we'd be passionate about that, to encourage people, to train people, to disciple people, to actually get out of our comfort, to walk with people who, who need someone to walk beside them and help them grow in their faith. And Father, would you help us to be peacemakers? People of reconciliation. We're not natural at that, so we need the power of your spirit to humble us, to break down our pride, and to help us see that unity, that reconciliation, that love in the church is more important than being right. It's more important than past grievances. You clearly demonstrate this, so help us to live it and walk it out. We need your power in that. We pray that you would continue to help us be passionate followers of you. And as we move into this fall, that you would help us to to work through the questions of how we might serve and honor you more and more. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'd invite you to rise again for our closing.